50 years ago, the average woman gave birth to five children during her lifetime. Today, that's down to about two and a half kids. At the same time, in many countries, people are dying at a faster rate than they're being born. This presents nations with an ultimately grim result. Without an influx of immigrants, their populations will decline. On the first of a special two-part episode of Benchmark, we explore why fertility rates are down around the world, what this means for the global economy, and what countries like the United States can do to reverse this trend. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. We're talking about fertility because it is an underlying driver of a nation's economy. You need babies to keep a population growing over time, which in turn supports a growing workforce. It also means houses and schools need to be built, goods need to be made and sold for kids and babies, and so on. One reason why economic growth is generally slower today than it was decades ago is because there's no baby boom like there was after World War II. In this two-part episode of Benchmark, we're looking at this drop in fertility rates from two different perspectives. Next week, we'll hear from an expert on China's demographics who explores whether the nation's one-child policy is responsible for a very low fertility rate. But our guest today isn't our typical expert on economics and demographics. She has a much more personal connection to this issue that led her to explore and research fertility. Her name is Elizabeth Katkin. She's an attorney in Denver, Colorado, and the author of the book Conceivability, What I Learned Exploring the Frontiers of Fertility. It was just published in June by Simon & Schuster. Liz, congratulations on the book and welcome to Benchmark. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Liz, tell us a bit first about yourself and your personal story that led you to write this book. Sure. Um, you know, as you, as you mentioned in your introduction, I'm not a fertility or demographic expert by background. Um, far more mundane than that, I was a corporate lawyer and I was living in Washington, D.C., and got married at the age of 30, and shortly after that, um, started trying to have children. There was nothing really in my background or my family's background that led me to believe or expect that I would have any trouble. So we just kind of got married, and, and I was working, and my husband was working, and we thought, well, you know, now's a good time to start a family. And it wasn't until we started trying to have to have a baby that that we realized well, we we slowly tiptoed into long, to the long journey ahead of us, but it wasn't until we started that that we encountered some troubles. And um, what ultimately started out as a, as a first trip to a doctor to see what might be wrong turned into a nine year journey to have two children. So um, over the course of nine years, I had seven miscarriages, ten IVF cycles, and saw doctors in, in six countries, and eventually uh, had a healthy boy and a girl. It really is an incredible story that you write about in your book. And just to take a step back for a moment, I know you don't really go in depth into why fertility rates are lower today or why there's such a burgeoning industry in fertility treatments. I think you do mention some factors, but I'm wondering, are, are the struggles of people to bear children are those kinds of struggles more common today than they were 40 or 50 years ago, or has it just become less of a taboo to talk about this kind of thing? You know, I think it's actually both. I think it, it certainly is less of a taboo to talk about it, but to the extent I did delve into some of the statistics, I mean, fertility is at, 
at an all-time low in the U.S. And approximately one in six couples are confronting infertility now, which is really an amazingly high number, if you think about that. One in six couples, it's about 7 million women a year are, are seeking help for fertility. And so I think it's it's certainly the case that people are talking about it more, but there are a lot more people having trouble. And as you mentioned, you know, our birth rate is as much lower than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I think that is, you know, partly by choice, women focusing more on their careers, but I think a lot of it is also, you know, not by choice. And I think it's probably, you know, I don't have the exact data on this, but ec more economically skewed now as well. I mean, the reality in this country is that if you're confronting infertility, your odds of having a baby are significantly higher if you have the funds to make it through a few rounds of, of treatment. And the prices are so astronomical that a lot of the population can't afford that. And you did end up going outside the U.S. for a good portion of your treatment, of your journey. So you have a pretty broad perspective on this issue. How, how do you think the healthcare and fertility industry in the United States helps or may even harm people who are having these kinds of uh, fertility problems? Yeah, I mean, that, that that's, a, that's a fantastic question. That is the crux of the problem. I mean, I think the fertility care, like, like a lot of healthcare in the United States, it's really a double-edged sword. I mean, I think it really helps some people um, and it really doesn't serve many other people. That's for a couple of reasons that I, that I conclude that. I mean, one, one is purely, as I mentioned, the economics of it. So, you know, compared to other countries, women and couples facing infertility start out at a pretty steep disadvantage in the U.S. You know, in most of the developed world, there are, you know, medical systems in place, whether it's national, national health services or mandatory insurance that cover fertility services. So fertility is really clearly treated as a medical problem in most of the developed world, and people are able to get help for that. You know, in the United States, of course, we have no national health service. And as far as insurance coverage goes, only 15 states require any form of insurance. You know, four of those states only require insurance for married couples. And there's only about a half a dozen states that have enough insurance to really help a woman or a couple have a baby. And so in most of America, patients confronting infertility are really on their own financially. That makes it a very difficult climate. Do you think that if the insurance coverage were much more extensive for fertility treatments in the United States, that that would increase birth rates? I mean, has that been shown to have some sort of link in the countries that that you know that do provide that kind of coverage? It's a great question. I I don't know that I have the data to give you to give you a firm answer on that because I haven't looked at the data so much on the on the national insurance and how it affects birth rates, but. I do know, you know, from my research here that there are a great number of people that just don't pursue IVF simply because they can't afford it or that the insurance coverage, you know, is limited to certain treatments and not others. So the insurance is actually shaping the treatments in ways that are probably not beneficial to having a baby. So, you know, I'm sorry I can't give you a give you the hard numbers on that, but I think it's something well worth worth looking into. But I, I think it does really disservice a lot of people that they can't they can't afford the care or that the insurance is really, you know, dictating their care. That's that's another problem I encountered 
in a number of the people I interviewed for the book were people feeling like they didn't have choices or didn't make the healthiest choices because of the limitations of their insurance. Now, it's not just insurance coverage for fertility treatments that helps people have children, uh, but you also spend a lot of your book covering the issue of uh, of using a surrogate carrier to, to have a child. And it's really interesting to read about how there's just such vastly different laws and regulations, not just uh, from country to country, but in the U.S., you know, practically every state has some different law on this issue. How do you think, you know, having more uniform regulations or laws on surrogate mothers would potentially affect people's ability to have more children? Well, I think having having uniform laws, you know, across the U.S. would certainly make things easier for a lot of people, because right now what you have is sort of among people that have already gotten to the stage that they've figured out they need a surrogate and they're, you know, you've got to be pretty far in the process and have reasonably deep pockets to get to the point of doing IVF with surrogacy. You then have to plunge into a new realm of do we need to travel and go somewhere else or do we have to pick a surrogate that lives somewhere else? And it's it's kind of like complex pieces of a puzzle to find a state with the right clinic that you want and the right doctor that you want and the surrogacy, surrogacy favorable laws um, that you want. And I think, you know, having more clarity of that would make it a lot easier for patients and would make it a lot, a lot more equitable uh, for people throughout the country. Is there any sort of main database that uh, tells people or websites? I'm sure that there've got to be some some sources of information, but it, it does, even with that, it probably is pretty bewildering to most people. Yeah. The, and most people end up hiring an agency and or a lawyer to handle it for them, which adds again, substantially to the cost. We never went that route. We didn't use a U.S. surrogate, but we also didn't use a U.S. you know agency or lawyer. Partly I had the advantage of, of being a lawyer, but I was able to research it on available resources, but it is a, it is like a massive, my friend called it a secret second job. Um, it's a massive research project and it's a lot of information um, to handle on your own. And I think, you know, hand in hand, it, it's a little, a little different from your question, but hand in hand with the regulation of surrogacy is the regulation of the egg and sperm donors. And I think that you know, that's really a minefield in this country where it's not only different state by state, but has much longer term implications for the children who are actually born, born of a donor egg or donor sperm or the parents. And there's there's not only any regulation of it, there's also no tracking of it, which makes us an outlier, you know, an outlier in the developed world where other countries are paying careful attention. I mean, between all these barriers to infertility treatments, the financial barriers, figuring out the surrogacy laws and regulations, uh, I mean, how much does this discourage people who don't have kind of the, you know, the fierce will plus the financial resources to figure out how to solve their own fertility issues? Yeah, I think it discourages people a lot. I mean, I think... There are a lot of people who feel like they hit a brick wall because they, they know they want to have a child and they're not quite sure how to get there. Then I think there are those that figure out how to get there but realize they need $100,000 to get there and they don't have it. And then there are the intrepid few you know, that go overseas. I, I myself went overseas and I, I interviewed quite a few others, but I, I spoke with a woman. I profiled her and her husband in the book who 
had done all the research on their own and really just couldn't, they'd gone through a few cycles in the U.S. without an egg donor, had spent pretty much all the money they had allotted for IVF, then found out they needed an egg donor, and were looking at cost estimates of about $50,000 for that cycle. And they went to Spain and um, for it all in cost of 10,000 euros, including the full IVF, the medication for the mother, the medication for the donor, the travel, um, their whole total cost was 10,000 euros. So, you know, some people are able to get around that by leaving the country. Not everybody really has the the knowledge and resource base to figure to figure that out yet, but I, it's starting to grow quite significantly. But 10,000 euros, you know, it's, it's kind of low for uh, these kinds of treatments or journeys, and yet it's still a lot for, you know, the average American who may not make that much money. And, you know, we write a lot about people can't come up with $400 for an emergency expense. You know, something like this would probably bankrupt most people. <laughs> it's true. I mean, the, the sad reality is that about 85% for, of fertility costs in the U.S. are paid out of pocket. And that's that's pretty much the inverse of what you'd see in in many other developed countries. Now, one interesting thing you, you write about at the end of your book when you're talking about possible solutions and advice to people facing these issues. One part that I found interesting as an economics editor is, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time covering the U.S. labor market. We, we've done a variety of stories on low unemployment, how it affects people's uh, ability to quit their job. And you write that some people are actually switching jobs to move to companies that actually provide better benefits for fertility treatment. I want to ask you one question past that, which is, has anybody been able to use fertility treatment as bargaining power with their employer? Say, you know, can you provide me this treatment and I'll stay with you? Or, you know, as as uh, bargaining for a new job, say? You know, that's a great question. And you may have just planted an idea for quite a few people, I'd say, especially in the technology sector. Um, I have not encountered anyone that actually used it as a bargaining chip, but I did encounter one woman who realized afterwards that she could have. She left her company to go to Apple because of their coverage. And when she resigned and told them why, her direct manager was shocked and, and he was a man and he asked her why she didn't tell him or talk to him and said, if that, if that was that important to you, we probably could have gotten that for you. So I think you're you're on the right track there. And there may be women starting to do that or may listen to your show today and get the idea to do that. But to date so far, what I've encountered, both through my own personal interviews and from reading quite a few interesting blogs about it, is, is people figuring out where would have the best coverage and targeting jobs at those companies. It's, uh, it's interesting to think about in a world where we have something like Uber and Lyft that's filled the demand for, say, uh, taxi cabs in major cities, you know, or, or even not in major cities like suburbs where you, it's really hard to get a cab, you know, that you have such demand for these kinds of services. And maybe there's just a company willing to come along or, or some sort of medical recommendation or innovation that could, you know, really cut through and uh, you know, solve fertility issues for you know, the many, many people who are facing this. I'm just wondering, as one last question, when you think about 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what the future of fertility looks like, 
you know, where do you see it going from here? How, are you are you optimistic, or do you think there's still a long ways to go before people do have ready access to the kinds of treatments that'll help them overcome infertility? Yeah, I mean, that's both. That's a cop-out of an answer, but I'm, I'm optimistic on the scientific side because the scientific progress has been really incredible. What scientists in the labs are learning about egg quality and embryo evolution, and, and I delve into this in a book, but how egg quality can potentially be improved and um, what some current researchers are looking at or how to actually improve egg quality in the human body before you try to get pregnant. Um, so I think on the scientific side, progress in fertility, like you know many other illnesses, it's, it's making leaps and bounds and our research capabilities are only improving. You know, and the financial side, you know, is a little bleaker when you put it in the context of what's going on with healthcare generally in this country. And I think there has to, at some point, be a reckoning with the fact that infertility actually is a medical problem. You know, in my view now, it's, it's treated a bit more akin to having a nose job. It's really elective. Like if you want to have a baby, you have to go spend all this money to have one. But, but as you, you mentioned in your opening, it's, they're real demographic implications. And, um, you know, we have a low birth rate and we need a growing workforce. And then the only real ways to increase the population are our fertility and immigration. And they're, those are both facing some obstacles in this country right now. So I, I think the, the political solution is a little harder to be optimistic about, but the scientific solution, I'm fairly optimistic for our future. So I think we've just got to get the balance right. All right. Well, glad to hear there's some glimmer of hope on that front. Uh, it really is an issue that affects so many people personally and uh, has implications for for the national economy and the global economy. Uh, so it, it's something that we all have to follow very closely. Uh, Liz Katkin, author of Conceivability, really fantastic book. Thank you so much for joining us on Benchmark. Thank you, Scott. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Benchmark will be back next week with part two of our episode on fertility. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, and podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can also check us out on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Landman. Our guest, Liz Katkin, is at Liz Katkin underscore books. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.